Tom, the next question comes from Oliver. I've recently become aware of ASMR, Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response videos on YouTube, which are videos where people perform role plays in front of the camera where they pretend to directly interact with the viewer. These videos can often involve whispering and different gentle interactions. To me, certain of these videos have a very relaxing effect. Suppose the performer in these videos is really good at intending and he intends to heal that person he pretends to interact with. If later on one million people watch that video, what happens with his inner initial intention? If every viewer receives the full intention, and if it was well-directed, it could be a very powerful tool. Or is the intent in any way split up among the viewers, losing its power that way? Or is it not even working to formulate an anonymous intent at the viewer without even knowing who will be watching the video? Okay, good questions. And uh, with that question, uh, Oliver put a little video so that you could see what this fellow was doing to give you an example of it and I didn't get here until just a few minutes before we we went on so I only looked at the first part of it but I looked at enough of it to uh, understand what he meant and in that little video there's a man who says he's going to give you a head massage and he talks about it and what he's going to do he explains how he's going to do it and he puts his hands out you know around where your head would be you know in the camera you know so he's got his hands out around the camera and that kind of stuff and he talks to you like he is in the room with you, going to give you this head massage. And, and my guess is he'd also tell you something about how it felt and what he was doing and all that feels really good and so on. So, yes, you could have someone that, say, um, you know, did a, a uh, work on your, on your physical body of things. And all the questions, Oliver asked about five or six questions in that one question, but uh, you could almost say yes to all of them. But it would be a different situation, so I'll try to run through some of them. And that is that really the the, mo the most power here, I guess it could be done many ways. It depends on the intent of the person doing it. If the intent on the person doing it was to heal the individual person, and they had a video, and the video was, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to heal your liver now. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And they talked about it, and the other person was getting that. And if in their intention when they were making this tape is that they would send healing energy to everybody who watched it, they would indeed send some healing energy to everybody who watched it. But it probably wouldn't be real strong because they're sending, it'd be the same if they were sending healing energy to, let's say, 10,000 people, but not all at the same time here and there. If they kept that intent up, not just when the video was done, but if they kept that intent up, that video I made last year, I'm still intending to send energy to all the people that see that. If they kept that current and kept putting energy in it, it could be effective. Not as effective as they would be with a single person. But if you added all their effectiveness up over all the people, then they still could be making quite a bit of difference. But that's not the main thing going on. That could be, but I'd say that's a minor uh, use of this technology, and that would be a minor effect. They'd be affecting people, you know, in, in light ways. It'd be a light touch. What they're doing 
at least what this fellow doing the head massage in the in the first five minutes I watched, what they were doing was really leading the viewer in a meditation. Now they wouldn't call it that, and it wouldn't be your formal meditation, but the viewer was sitting there and saying, all right, I'm going to get my head massaged. And, the, and he says, oh, and I'm rubbing here, and it feels really good. And the viewer would be with them in that, okay? The, the, there would be a, a communication there, and the viewer would go, oh, yeah, that's good. Oh, that does feel good. I get it. And if the viewer got into it with him, then basically the, the person that's made the video has created a, a um, interactive meditation aid to lead a person through the experience of getting this head massage or of healing themselves or of gaining more confidence or you know being a better speaker or whatever you know there's there these tapes could make you learn a foreign language you know you pick your subject it would basically put you in a meditation state and then let you focus your intent on what this person was saying and what they were intending to do would become your intent and by that, what they're doing is not that they are healing you so much, is that they are leading you in a self-driven meditation, with a healing self-driven. They're leading you in a meditation to help you focus your intent on healing yourself. So the real key here is something that, that gets 100,000 people who watch the video now could become very effective in using that video to focus their own intent on their own problem, whether that's to get rid of a stutter or you know rub their head or you know or, or heal themselves or whatever. And I think that would be very effective. And I think it's already been done to the sense that I think there are videos out there that help people deal with certain kinds of problems and issues, and most of those succeed by getting the person themselves to focus their own intent on that solution. You see, so it's not that the solution is pushed out through the screen to that person, or it's not that the guy who made the tape now is going to heal 10,000 people who watched it. It's that he's going to help 10,000 people heal themselves because he's going to lead them into the right kind of intentions and, and, and visualizations and feelings that are going to help them heal themselves. That's the real that's the real power. The, the, the much smaller effect would be the actual healing intent of the person who made the video actually healing lots and lots of people, although that would be, that is a real effect. That would be there if the intent of that person was to do that. If the intent of that person was just to help the viewer uh, fix themselves, then that that intent would not be healing anybody. But if the if the guy making the tape or the girl making the tape really intended for their own energy to heal, then it would have some effect. You can set up things like that. You know, it's just like you can uh, uh, you know meditate on world peace, where you're sending out peace and love and caring to all the conscious things in the world, and that does help a little bit. But it's a small increment. Because yeah, the world's a big place and has a lot of momentum. So to move the probability of what the world does, kind of the world probability line for you to for you to move that dramatically is a pretty hard thing. All you can do is give it a little nudge, a, a, a nudge that probably nobody notices.
but a nudge just the same. You see, so it, this would be kind of like that. So the, the guys doing the film would maybe give a little nudge to a whole lot of people, but mostly they'd help a whole lot of people give themselves a much bigger nudge. Because those people, if they didn't have the tape, wouldn't have any idea they could do anything, that they had the power, that they had the ability. Yet this, this tape would get them quiet, would get them focused. They'd listen to the guy talk. They wouldn't be thinking about other things, you see. That would be a, a, a really big help to them. So, Oliver, does that... Uh, I know you had a whole list of questions in there. Did I cover most of them? Yeah, sure, you did. Uh, just one piece of information that I found quite interesting because I did that uh, because I have currently have a little bit high blood pressure and I use that to push mm -hmm. it down. And uh, the doctor, which I'm currently visiting, she hardly believed that it's possible to lower the systolic, so that the first value, the systolic, I think that's the right English term, from 145 mm -hmm. to 120 within five minutes. So just watching that video within five minutes it drops by 25 uh, points, and that's really something no medicine can do. And right. me, those videos are perfect. <laughs> yes, they would do that. And did you feel that it was something being done to you or something that you were being led to do to yourself, or did you not know? Uh, I would think it's the second one, that it, it was something that I did to myself, but I, I probably did not intend it at least consciously. It probably was somehow induced somehow. That's what I would yes. guess. Well, the person leading that video probably uh, had some intention of it being helpful to you. And if you kind of become one with the, with the voice on the video, then you have some intention of it being good for you too. That, that is a, an intention of yours that it uh, you know, helps your, your blood pressure, your systolic... Uh, number go down. Yeah, I think that's that's really the the key is that if you just if, if somebody just came up to you and said, "Well, you can fix that yourself." You might think, "Well, maybe theoretically, but I really don't know how." But if you have somebody that's going to sit in front of you and 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 lead you through this 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 basically uh I don't know, uh predisposing you or or leading you to have certain attitudes about your blood pressure and about yourself and, and so on, that certainly could be uh, very helpful. Mm, yeah, okay, thank you. Yeah. Tom, in this past example, um, the intent prevails. Um, in a question I have, perhaps the data is more of the subject. I once missed a remote viewing experiment on a live show. I went back to the archived show, and it worked as well as it would have live. Uh, the data was still there. So it yeah. is a case of uh, not intent involved, but just retrieving data. It's just something similar, but not quite. No, it's, a, it's still the intent. You know, when I do uh, my workshops, the, the big workshops that are over two, three days, I have a, uh, some exercises where people can learn to actually interact with the larger conscious system because I tell everybody, well, it's not your truth until it's your experience, then I need to help them find a way to make it their experience. So toward the end, I, we do healing, remote viewing, and those kinds of things just to give them some tools to have their experience. And I'll have subjects then, and I'll maybe have six or seven different subjects with, with health problems, and I want the people in the, in the workshop to 
discover what the health problem is and then to try to treat it, to try to fix it. And I still have people, and in the remote viewing is the same way. I have a bunch of targets. So after everybody's done, then I show, I tell them what was wrong with the people, and I show them what the targets were for the remote viewing, and all of that's done. Now, here we are, uh, say some of them, like five years later, there are people watching these videos. And they are finding problems with these people, the same problems, because then when I show them, I show them the... Uh, you know, the result, what was wrong with this person? Was it a, you know, did they stumble their toe, you know, bad heart, cancer, you know, what was it? And they'll find the problem. Say, yeah, I got that one right. Well, this is like five years later. Are those people still alive? It wouldn't make any difference, you see. But it is a matter of intent. And it doesn't make any difference that the, that the you know, the things for remote viewing. It wouldn't make any difference if the, the building I was having them remote view had been demolished and hauled away in a truck. They'd still see the building. Why is that? Because when I, when I set it up, I tell them, I said, if you're, if you're doing this at a later time, intend to see the target that I have now. If you're healing at a later time, intend to heal this person as they are now. So your intent is, I want to find that place that's, you know, exercise number three in this thing um, the way it was then. Well, there it is. They find that they find a place, whether it exists anymore or not. And I want you to heal this person as they existed then. And they do that. Now, if they don't have that intent, if their intent is, oh, I want to go to this person and see what's wrong with them, then they won't get the right answer if what's wrong with them has changed. Then they'll get the data that has to do with that person. So it depends completely on their intent in that, they have to intend to do the experiment that was done in that workshop with the result at that time. And if that's what their intent is, that's what they'll get. If their intent is not clear, you see, this is why a clear intent is important. Because most people don't think about their intents. Their intents just kind of pop out of their head, and they don't have any control over them. You know, this is whatever it is. Now, the ones who come to that situation and just kind of automatically say that they're going to do the exercise that's with this, you know, here's the course that this is exercise number seven, and they want to do exercise number seven, and I want to intend to see that. Well, the that, how is that interpreted? I want to see that. They don't specify what that is. Well, if their sense is I'm doing this exercise, they'll get it the way that exercise was. If their sense of I want to do that is I just want to, I just want to know how, you know, I just want to be able to see a body and see maybe what's wrong with it. If that's the that, then the that is whatever's current. So now how does the system know? Well, the system looks at it, looks at the person, sees where the, what their mind is, and it does one or the other. It either gives them the way it is now, current date, or it gives them however it was. So it, because people have very sloppy intents, we don't think about that. Say, so, oh, yeah, I want to do that, and then, you know, what's that? Well, get two different answers, depending on what your sense of that is. The system does the best it can. So there is a higher probability, or a higher number of people who take that five years later, who take my, my, uh, my subjects in these experiments five years later, there would be a lower percent of those that get them right than the ones that were there. But there's still quite a bit of people will get them right, even though they're old and those... People either aren't sick or maybe aren't alive anymore or all kinds of things have changed. So uh, 
it is a matter of intent. And most of us have very sloppy intents. We don't really think exactly what we want. And that's a problem because then we wonder, well, why did I get that? Why am I answer wrong? Well, it's because your intent was fuzzy. You get a fuzzy result. They may do it, and instead of getting, let's say the, the problem was it was a cancer of the throat. So there should have been this big black area because I tell them that black is what's, what's the damage. So they might have seen a big black area in the throat. Well, if they weren't clear about their intent, they may look at it, and they may see that black thing. They may look at it again, and it may be gone. Nothing at their throat. Then they look at it again, and it's there, and then it's not, and they get confused. Well, is it there or isn't it there? I get it both ways. Well, that's because your intent's not clear. Your intent, it's like uh, Googling, uh, you know, some general topic in, in Google, you know, and you, you put in something real general, and you get a 100,000 results back all over the place because your, your query wasn't sufficiently well-defined. Well, it's the same way. You're making a query to the database, and if it's if it's sloppy, then you get sloppy stuff back. Or you, or the if the system can only if it's an A B kind of thing, then the system will give you either A or give it B based on the, their guess about what your what your intent is. Sometimes we'll have people who will get this happens quite a bit in those sessions. We'll get people who get all the answers right. Okay, my my five objects to look at was. Uh, an apple slicer, a pair of pliers, um, a baby's else, and they'll get all five of them right, but not in the right order. When it was the pliers, they got the pacifier, and when it was the, you know, when it was the apple peeler, you know, they they got something else. And they kind of they come up to me later and they said, I got all of them, but I got them all wrong. I got them all at the wrong time. Well, that's because they didn't have a good intent. Their intent was they wanted to see the, you know, the object, the remote viewing object, and they didn't specify exactly which remote viewing object they wanted to see. Their mind was kind of like this as far as focus on that, so they get kind of like this. They pick, they pick them all up, but not in the right order because their intent wasn't clear. You get that that kind of. Uh, Thing will happen a lot. They get things in, in opposites because people's intents aren't clear. Anyway, that uh, that's yeah, it, it is a matter of intent, but the data is still there. Yes, if you want to know a hundred years from now, if you can pick up that old YouTube thing still still visible a hundred years from now, people will be able to go back and and do a uh, a scan of the health of that person at that time and get that data and get it right, even though that person's maybe been dead for 50 years. Because that's the data that's in the database. So that's why those experiments, they'll work forever, because the data is there. But it's the intent that gets that data. If you say, I want to I see what that person looks like now, then if they've been dead for 50 years, you probably won't get anything, because there is no data on now, today. Because they don't have a, they don't have cancer today. They've been dead for 50 years, so you won't get anything. You see, so that's the, that's the way that works. Since we've been talking about intent all day, I think that's a, a very important point to make about intent: is the specific uh, nature of your intent. Um, it's very helpful. 
Yeah, very important. Uh -oh. And most people don't do it any better. They do when they do Google. You know, they do the same things on Google. They, they put something very general there, and then they get all this stuff, and they say, well, that's not quite what I meant, and then I'll make it a little more specific, and then I'll get a still bunch of stuff, and, well, that's not quite what I meant. And they'll, they'll narrow it down until eventually they can find what they want. Um, you, you can do that with your own intent, getting data out of the database, too. You can ask for things, and if you get a hodgepodge, you can say, well, was my intent really clear? Well, I see. Maybe I need to, you know, and you can work your way down until you get a more precise intent. But, you know, we tend to think sloppily. Most of us don't think real precisely much of the time because communicating verbally with other people, it's, a, you know, most people guess what you mean by the, con you know, by, the, by the content of what you're talking about. And we're just not used to being very precise. People who are scientists, tend to be more precise because they're used to being precise because it's required in their careers. If you're a mathematician, you have to be precise. You know, you can't sort of get a, you know, well, the answer's sort of 200, but, you know, not quite. You know, we don't, that doesn't work in mathematics, but it works for most of us in our daily lives. So we just tend to be really sloppy with our thoughts. And that's, yeah, it's very important to make your intents clear and precise. Oliver's next question is about reality manipulation and unusual experiences. I have a question that's somewhat related to the scion certainty principle. I've run across several reports where two or more people had an unusual collective experience in which some participants could see, for an example, a UFO while others standing right next to them could not. In our interview with Neil Kramer, you both talked about injecting information into an inv individual's data stream, which would allow a kind of overlay of reality elements on top of the collectively experienced reality. In this overlay injection mechanism commonly used by the larger consciousness system to provide small groups of individuals with the unusual experiences like seeing a UFO or a ghost or these are or are these experiences when permitted by the science certainty principle usually part of consensus reality and should be perceivable by everybody? They are both. Both happens, you know, both of those phenomena happen. That sometimes it's a consensus uh, reality experience. In other words, it's, it's a physical experience and all physical beings who have the proper sensors like eyes, you know, or ears will see it and hear it. But uh, many times, particularly when it's very unusual things, like maybe a UFO or, or um, uh, somebody who sees, uh, you know, sees a vision of some sort, uh, most of that is given directly by the larger conscious system to that individual. So if it's on that individual's path of uh, making choices and growing up to see a UFO, then that person may be given that data stream and the person standing next to them, it's not on their path. If they saw that, it would upset their life. It would uh, create uh, dysfunction. Uh, uh, it would be a problem for them. They wouldn't be able to process the data very well. Then they don't see that. And the larger consciousness system can do that as long as there's enough uncertainty between them, you know, that, that, no, you know, that it doesn't create this... Uh, um, an inconsistent condition. Okay, two people stand there. One of them said, I saw a UFO, and the other says, I doesn't, that they didn't. Well, science certainly says, that's all right. You know, that's not going to start any, you know, big problems in the reality for that. Just two people disagree. People disagree all the time. Um, that, uh, 
you know, so the, the system doesn't have any uh, any constraints about not doing that kind of stuff. That's a minor inconsistency that just falls into the into the natural uncertainty. Different people will see and interpret different things. Uh, sometimes people see things and other people don't all the time. So that's just not a problem. Yes, the system will do that. It will feed people what it is they need, keep people from seeing things that uh, they couldn't process. It would be not good for them. And uh, also, of course, there are there are probabilistic things that are part of the consensual reality that we all that we all share. Although sometimes even those things are not seen. Now there's a story, I don't know if it's true or not, but I've read it a couple of places, uh, and that is that uh, the first Spanish uh, uh, explorers of Mexico uh, reported back in their, their logs and things of their, of their adventures, mostly the sailors in those days kept logs because that's where they were, they were paid for by some king or queen who wanted to know what, what was there. So they had to keep logs of what happened. And they reported this phenomena that the natives, uh, coastal natives, could not see their ship. That they had this big, uh, you know, two or three mast uh, sailing ship with, you know, 50 sailors on board or whatever. And that the local people just couldn't see it. And uh, you've probably heard, you maybe heard the story as well, but they reported it. And, uh, you know, they could see the canoes, they could see the small things, they could see the rowboat that came in ashore from the big boat, but the big boat, they just didn't see. It wasn't there. Now, why is that? Well, if it's something outside of your reality, and you see, you get that data, you don't know how to interpret it. There's reasons that you maybe don't see that. So how do you interpret it? Well, there's something that's totally outside of your experience. You don't have an interpretation for it. Ignore it. It's not there. You don't see it. Or you might get data, and that data is very frightening. That data would upset your life, would kick the, you know, kick the supports right out from under your, your belief system. So you look at it, and you just don't see it. It's just not there. You see? So because what we see is not necessarily what's there, it's what we interpret the data to be, we can interpret things away. We can just refuse to see them because they're not in our reality or because it would be upsetting or any number of reasons why we just don't see things that we look at. So that's another kind of wrinkle in the same in the same question. So that's that's three different ways you can look at it. You know, the the reality it's just there and uh, everybody sees it or it's there and some people see it and some don't or it's not in the consensual reality, and it's a data stream independently given to various people. All of those things can happen. That's why there's so much uncertainty about you know, what's out there. And with that much uncertainty, the system can play all kinds of tricks. Tom, the next question comes from Pally. Are we becoming less human while growing up and dropping ego? I have talked to people about living a more balanced life where emotions don't have to force our actions if we just learn to live without attaching to the bad in our lives and also to the good. Few times I received responses where there was concern about losing humanity while losing the attachment to emotions. The way I see things now, it is only possible to become detached and fearless 
if we stop thinking in terms of good and bad. With this attitude, we can drop desires like the desire to be accepted, to feel safe, the desire to be loved, and physical desires. This is what I understand under dropping the ego. Doing decisions out of a detached, natural, balanced state where I'm free to do whatever I choose to do just because I feel it's the right thing to do without needing to fear without needing fear to guide my actions or ensure self-preservation is living with detachment but involved out of my own free will one of the signs of growing up yes it is and it kind of depends on what you mean by the by the detachment uh, there is there are things that are good and things that are not good you can't uh, and you did say that uh, you're doing that you're living your life, you know, doing things just because you think they're right. Well, that means you have to have some basis for deciding what's right and and what's not right. So we do get, you know, the, the these choices between what's good and what's not good are fundamental choices. It does matter what's right and it does matter what we do. But in general, yes, that's true, and no, we don't lose our humanity. You know, here we are, we're humans, and because most humans are full of fear and anguish and, and uh, anxiety, and we're saying, well, if you let go of that fear and anguish and anxiety, you're losing your humanity. <laughs> That's not true. You know, okay, so, you know, because most, because most uh, humans are, uh, you know, neurotic doesn't mean that uh, if you get rid of the neurosis, you're losing your humanity. That's not it at all. Humanity is just a species that's evolved here on this planet. You know, we are what we are. That's humanity. And uh, you can be uh, a, a more more to the whole if you're love-based than if you're fear-based. So you become a more effective and a, a more uh, grown and a more uh, valuable human among humanity if you grow up. And to do that, you need to drop ego. And to drop ego, you need to become detached from your ego connection to things. You see, we get attached through our ego. And if it's an ego attachment, then it's good to get rid of that ego attachment. An ego attachment is, I, I want this to happen. I want that person to be that way. Uh, I, you know, it, all, the, all the sentences start with I. And it's about what you want and what you need and the way you think things ought to be, and that's your ego. And if you can let all that go, then yes, that's a that's a first step to growing up because what is that ego? It's fear. So if you let the ego go, you're letting your fear go. See, so yes, that's good and that's necessary. Um, no, it's not losing your humanity. We don't define humanity as a, as a neurotic being full of fear. That's humanity, and uh, if you're not that, then you're not human. No, that's not true. You're human just because you're part of the species. It has to do with how we procreate and and uh, the way our bodies look and so on is what makes us human or not. Um, all the rest of that stuff we have, uh, humans can be exceedingly uh, fearful or exceedingly loving and caring and still all uh, are humans. It's just that the loving and caring ones, caring ones contribute a whole lot more to the collective humanity and they're kind of a a force or a pressure pushing us toward ev higher evolution, better evolution, and the ones that are fearful are dragging us down to a lesser, you know, higher entropy existence. So that's the 
that's the way of it. But in your basic question, though, it was kind of had very had various nuances to it. Just in general, yes, uh, letting go of ego attachments is a good thing, a necessary thing, because ego is fear. It's letting go of fear attachments. Maybe just to add uh, one more question to that, if I may. Um, the, the, there was one other question from me uh, regarding uh, the truly selfless intent. And uh, basically, I right now believe that it is not possible to be selfless because we are all connected. So basically, whatever I want, I want for all of us, so to speak. It's maybe a bit too philosophical, but if I try to be selfless, it always could be led to some advantage for me, myself. So Right. You're defining selfless intellectually. See, that's an intellectual selfness. Mm -hmm. We define in our intellect that selfness means that it doesn't, uh, you know, it's, it's not for us. It, it's not, we're doing it, you know, not for us. Well, just if you're not doing it for, for you, doesn't mean that it doesn't necessarily help you. The things you do to help other people may help you too. So selflessness, you know, it doesn't mean that you don't get any benefit from it. Because, like you say, we're all part of the same thing. You know, if the whole thing gets better, then I get benefit from that. And if I'm part of making it better, then I get part of that benefit. Um, of course. But that's really not self. what selfless means. Selfless means what's your motivation? What's your intent for this? Is your intent for this because this is what I want, because this is what I need, and this will be good for me? Or is your intent for this because I think this is the right thing to do? It's not about you or not about you. It's just, is this the right thing to do? And is, you know, is it helpful to others? Is this in general going to lower or raise the, you know, the entropy of the system? Not just of me or not just of other people, but the entropy of the system. What is this? And if it's, if your intention is you're doing it because, not again from the intellect, because I think I should, but you're doing it because this feels like the right thing to do. And if you're a grown person, the right thing to do is the loving, caring thing. If you're not, the right thing to do is, you know, if you're, if you're a very high entropy person, the right thing to do is to, just to hit that person and take their wallet and run, you see. Take their stuff. That would be the right thing to do. Because you're a low-quality person. So you say, well, I'm a low-quality person. Am I out here all alone, just this one other person? Shoot, I could hit them over the head and grab their, you know, grab their purse and run off and make some money. And that would seem like the right thing to do. Well, in the bigger picture, that's the wrong thing to do. You are increasing the entropy when you do things like that. You're not building and constructing and making things better. You're tearing apart and creating more fear, and you're part of the problem. So it's not... It's not just, you know, you do have to think about the effect of what you're doing, the effect you have on other people. It's not just about you. So if you're interacting with people, it's how will this interaction affect them? And you may decide that uh, telling them the truth might affect them badly because they're not capable of, of processing the truth without creating trauma or making their life worse or making them even retreat into their beliefs further, right? In which case, you don't tell them, you see, and it's because you don't think it will be helpful. Now, if you do think things would be helpful to others, then you just do them, because then that seems like the good thing to do, because you're a nice guy. And if, let's say it turns out that it's not all that helpful. You thought it would be, but it turns out it messes them up somehow. 
Well, then you take a lesson and say, well, next time I need to be more cautious there. I need to, I need to understand this problem at a deeper level because I just kind of superficially thought it would be good and it wasn't. You see, so now you learn something. So the point is, just be authentic, do it. But yes, you still have a brain attached. You still need to kind of see the results of what you're doing. Did it really help that person or did it not? You see, that's the thing. And if it doesn't really help them, then why do you want to do that? Well, then you don't. So you, you change. You grow based on your assessment of the feedback you get from what you're doing. What matters isn't so much what you do, but it's the intent. Because even if you intend to help and you don't, you make it worse. Well, if your intent was good, that means you'll learn from that mistake. Well, that's a positive thing for you. It's a learning thing. They get an opportunity to learn, too. Somebody just jumped in their game and messed them up and had the right intention, and they need to be able to say, well, that happens sometimes, and go on. So you know, the lessons get passed around, and everybody has some, some uh, ability to learn from them. So it's not important that you never make a mistake and that your intellect knows ahead of time exactly what the right thing is to do. So that's not important. Just do it. Be aware of the feedback. How does it work? And if it's a good thing to do, then you may want to do more of that. If it turns out not so good, you may not. If it turns out somewhere in the middle, then leave it be, you know, let it be in the middle. Live with uncertainty. Be authentic. Uh, but don't, uh, so you've taken, t you've taken this idea of, of being uh, self-serving to, is there any way that it actually could end up helping me? Well, that's not really what's meant there. Self-serving is your intent for doing it is because it's, it's going to, you know, be good for you. you know, I'm, I'm telling you this because I, I want you to do something. I want you to you know, move to the right, so I'm telling you this to manipulate you to get what I want. That's self-serving. But I'm going to do something nice for you, and that, that really helps you so much that you turn around and do something nice for me. Well, that's just good. Accept that. That's good. That's the way, you know, that's the way positive stuff is. Yay, team. You know, it, it works that way. It's not that, well, that really wasn't self-serving because, you know, I got a benefit from it. It's all about your intent, not really about what happens. What gets done isn't the issue. It's where's your intent coming from. Thank you very much, Tom. So I think I now have a confirmation of, of my understanding because basically selflessness in the intellectual way uh, would be having uh, some benefit at the second level of what is happening, not direct uh, effect, right. but at the second level, right? Right. Okay. It would. And um, that's good. You know, the more good you do in the world, the more good other people will do. And that's good. And the better the world gets, the better everybody gets in it. But that's, that's a good thing, not a, not a bad thing. Holly has another a question, I have noticed that there's no strict guideline of how much force versus acceptance should be used where. That is probably the biggest part of living gracefully with uncertainty. But what about going with the flow, as the saying goes? Is the flow just a metaphor for entropy lowering choices? Or is there some actual pull that we can intuitively feel if we open ourselves to it? Is it some ideal life trajectory guided by my individuated unit of consciousness or soul, which has the biggest potential to help us grow up? And can you give some insight on when to use force and be therefore left less relaxed, open, and playful? 
Yes, uh, you know, going with the flow, uh, everything else, you know, there's, there's times to go with the flow and there's times to swim upstream. You know, there's, there's times to do both of those things. Uh, if you happen to uh, just, uh, you know, get uh, join up with an angry mob, going with the flow is probably a real bad thing to do because the flow may be in the direction in which all of the people around you are thinking, and they may be thinking something that isn't too good, and going with that flow wouldn't be good. There's all sorts of flows, and just going with the flow is not a, is not a philosophy that you just want to apply carte blanche and say, well, whatever the flow is, I go with it. Now, if we talk about trying to control your life, trying to manipulate your life to be the way you think it ought to be, then and we think of that as being counter to going with the flow. That's a, a manipulated, directed life from your intellect. Okay, now, that would, that would be not going with the flow. Instead of just dealing with the things that happen to you, you want to construct and, and manipulate everything that happens to you. Then I'd say to that person, you need to go with the flow more. You, know, you need to just live your life and let, let things happen around you. Let the results of your choices, you know, Become aware of them and then deal with them instead of trying to manipulate everything. So it just depends on the context. Most of these these little sound bites that we use go with the flow. Uh, there's places to apply those where they really help a lot, and then there's places where that'll just get you into trouble. There's, it's, it's your intent. And what is your intent? Is your intent to be helpful to people? Well, then do what just comes natural. Do what your intuition says. And then be aware of how you affect people. That's all. You don't have to, you don't have to, your intellect doesn't have to make sure that what you're doing is the right thing. I guess is what I'm saying. You can overthink things to death to where you get paralyzed and can't do anything. That's kind of the, the problem with, with the left brain dominant person in a relationship. They overthink everything and they end up not doing anything until things get so bad that then that pops and then they stick their foot. You know, right in the middle of it, and it, it doesn't work well. Well, that's because they're not going with the flow there. You know, they're not paying attention. They're trying to manipulate and rearrange everything from the intellect. So just, probably just be who you are. Use your intuition. Well, I'd like to go over and introduce myself to these people and be friendly. Not because you think that's the right thing to do, because you'd like to meet them and see who they are and maybe what, you know, what they could contribute. And if what you feel like is, I really don't want to meet anybody else. I've shook hands with too many people. I'd just as soon go home. Go home. You see, and then see where that gets you. You come back to the office later, and they say, oh, we met all these people, and then you went home. What happened to you? Gee, we had a lot of fun, and we went out and did this. And then you think, well, maybe going home wasn't it. Maybe I should have not done that. Maybe that was just about me wanting to escape and not... Uh, be vulnerable to these people anymore and you know now I've, so you learn you see it's not so much what you do it's what you can learn from it so just do it just be so then it's easier to be authentic well you know just be yourself do it and then see where it takes you does it take you a better place does it take everybody else in your life a better place or not if not find out why not and get rid of the fear Go on. That's that's kind of the process. So sometimes you have to go with the flow. That means not try to manipulate everything. Deal with things as they happen with your best choices. And sometimes you need to swim upstream. You don't want to go with the flow because the flow is going down the drain or the flow is going someplace that 
you know isn't a good place to go. And then you gotta you gotta get out of the flow, find a different flow to get into. But in general, you've probably heard me say that the way life works is that uh, things happen. You get to you know you get to deal with them. And if you focus all your energy on what happens, that's not that's manipulation. Just let things happen and then deal with it. We could call that going with the flow. But you can't take that to extremes. Anything you just apply without you know, without reason is, is not helpful. So just put the way you feel. You can see how what happens. What did you learn? How did you help? How do you need to change to be more helpful and to grow? But not from the intellect, you know. You have to feel it and then just go try it and see how it works. It's all right to make mistakes. You don't have to have it perfectly and make sure it's the right move before you make it. That's somebody who's afraid of making a mistake. It's a fear. You're afraid to not do it right. Just do it. Deal with it later and see if you can't learn something from it rather than be afraid of whether or not you're doing it right or wrong. Thank you, Tom. Tom, the next question comes from an MBT forum user. Why do we experience profound deja vu effects in our time in this virtual reality? Well, again, there's multiple reasons. It's hardly, you know, it's not so simple that there's only one answer to that. Again, it could be, as, as Oliver said, it could be just information that's being given to you. It just puts that in your data stream, that this is really familiar. You just get that sense that's, that is... Uh, just could be given to you by the larger conscious system because they want you to make a connection or they want you to maybe see something or get a sense of the reality of being larger or there's something else for you to to um, to look at. You need to look at this with more detail. So it could be that. It could be that there's something in your memory someplace that gets triggered. You know, it's something that Lawrence said. You know, we get habituated to things and if you get habituated to things and where you live, there was a certain arrangement of buildings or a certain way that people acted, and, and now you're someplace else, and you see that same arrangement. It suddenly you get, oh, I've been here before. Well, yes, the pattern fits, sort of fits a pattern that you've already got, you see? And then that could be deja vu, just because we do pattern matching, and our bodies don't have to have exact matches to patterns, or our, our minds. We just have to have a, a rough approximate connection to that pattern and we'll get a sense of familiarity out of it that we know that because it's just in our experience base or it may be because it's something that has to do with a past life or uh, maybe a future relationship or any number of things that the system can be nudging you to pay attention to to nudge you in a particular way maybe there's maybe there's a book in that bookstore that really you need to read and you get to that bookstore and you look at it and you just get this sense of, I've been here. I know. I've got a relationship here. I need to go into that bookstore. You know, well, that's not exactly deja vu, but it's a similar kind of thing where you just get these feelings that you need to do a certain thing or that certain things are, are similar, and you go do them. Um, there's lots of different reasons for that, but uh, some of them could be the larger cancer system nudging you. Some of them could be that they, it's a... It's a rough pattern match to something else. Um, 
or maybe it's just random. You know, we people sometimes just things because we feel like doing something different. Or it may be an excuse. You may want to go in that bookstore, but you know you've already spent too much money, so you conjure up something that'll make it easier for you to convince yourself to go in. Like, uh, I remember that. I remember this bookstore, but I've never been here before. Gee, isn't that odd? I'll have to go in to find out what's what's going on there. You know, maybe it's a ploy. Hard to say, but uh, the deja vu is a very common experience of of many people. They suddenly get a sense of knowing or being somewhere. Um, I suspected a lot of times it's just a, a rough pattern match of something that they've seen elsewhere, but the other half of the time, or maybe uh, maybe a little less of the time, maybe 40% uh, versus that 60%, is that it's a, it's a pattern comes out of a, an experience that's maybe not in this lifetime or something that the larger conscious system is trying to get you to see or focus on or do. Tom, the next question comes from Shaw. Tom, you talk about RNGs, this is random number generators, and how they maintain some degree of randomness on account of the rule set. How do you know for sure that this is the rule set and not simply based purely on our own beliefs about and expectations for how a random number, random number generator should function? For example, if someone was using a random number generator and knew with certainty that they could get 100 every time on a 1 to 100 RNG, for example, even if they ran it 10,000 times, assuming their belief in their ability to overcome the randomness was a pure conviction and they were astoundingly great at focusing on their intent, would they be able to do it? I'm not sure I follow his example there with getting 100. Uh, does he mean that you run out, uh, you just ask the random number to spit out a random number and it spits out 100? I, or is I that, think, I think so, yes. It spits out a whole yes. bunch of numbers and it, and it averages to 100 or, or knew what? With, knew with certainty that they could get 100 every time on a 1 to 100 RNG, even okay. if they ran it well, 10,000 times. Well, the way the probability works for that, so that if, if you... You have a random number generator that will randomly generate some number between zero and one hundred. You have a, you have a, uh, or between one and one hundred, let's say, you have a one in one hundred chance that it's going to be any particular number. Okay, so if you every time you reach into that that basket with the one hundred numbers in it that's randomized, you'll pull out. A different number, or you'll pull out a number. And the probability is one in one hundred that it's the number that you name. Like if I say I'm going to pull out a six, you got one in one hundred chances of pulling out a six. Okay, now if you pull out a six again, let's say you firstly you, you pull out a a six. Now you reach back in. What's the probability, you know, that you can put that six back in and run out to pull that same six out the next time, or the next time, or the next time? Well, that's 1 in 100 times 1 in 100 times 1 in 100. And every time you do that, you're multiplying it by 1 in 100 again. And you can see the decimal places are going to pile up pretty fast on the right side of the decimal point there. And your probability gets lower and lower and lower. So the amount of intent, the amount of motion you have to move to that intent in order to do that would be phenomenal. It's very unlikely you're going to be able to do that, How, however good your focus and 
is because now you've got something that's a one to a, one to a million that you can do it and your intent's going to overcome that. That's violating psi uncertainty. If you know the cameras are rolling, that's uh, just not so likely to happen. That you pull the first 100 out the first time, that's one in 100. Yeah, one in 100. I'm not sure I, I, I really get the, the problem here, what he's, what he's asking. Does somebody have some, some elucidation? I'm not sure. If someone else does, please uh, come in. But I think he is asking in the second part of the question um, something to do with breaking the rule set. I remember you saying the rule set can be broken in another chat. Use the example of someone being able to walk through a brick wall but then not being able to re repeat the result while others were watching. Could high-level beings pull this sort of thing off consistently as long as they didn't violate the reality of anyone who was watching and their understanding of the PMR? And thus, could a being consistently and predictably overrule the rule set of a PMR? Again, assuming no one's watching. Lastly, would they be able to override all the rules or just some? So I'm guessing the gist of the question is, could somebody with a... Um, astoundingly great um, ability to focus their intent, be able to override all of these uh, probabilities? Uh, perhaps that they could. If you have somebody, let's say, levitates, you know, now they levitate in the privacy of their own home and nobody's around and they're not, uh, you know, uh, using it as an ego thing or whatever. It's just part of their daily meditation that they float up to the ceiling. Well, there's probably nothing wrong with that for as far as the larger consciousness system is concerned because it doesn't violate anybody's, you know, uh, it doesn't violate psi uncertainty. If it's something that uh, they're able to to uh, do as far as the, the data stream, they're able to affect that and create that, uh, that effect. I don't see why that uh, would be prohibited, that uh, that wouldn't work. It certainly would be unusual and not be very many people who would be in that uh, position to do that and of course it have no credibility because as long as nobody's seen it but them they can come out and say oh I levitate every night and everybody would laugh at him and say sure you're nuts so it you know it wouldn't it wouldn't have any traction anywhere it would just be a thing for them but could that could that be possible sure why not almost anything is possible in a in a uh, digital reality yes an individual could violate those kinds of rules in there, you know, by themselves with nobody else involved in it and do it routinely because I don't see that it really breaks any rules. They would just have to have somehow have enough uh, uh, ability to modify reality that they could make that happen. And in that case, it really wouldn't be any difference whether they could make that happen or imagine that they made that happen. From their viewpoint, it would all be the same. Unless there was somebody watching, unless the camera was rolling and uh, whatever, that would, uh, how can you tell whether you're actually floating in the air or you're just imagining you're floating in the air? You see, it's a, it's a, moot, it's a moot point. There's no, uh, there's no way you say, well, I'd open my eyes and see if I was up in the air or down in my bed. Well, you can, be up in, you can imagine that you're up in the air looking down. That's not a hard thing to do. So how can you tell the difference if there's nobody... If there's no camera and nobody else to uh, give you a, a uh, you know, an objective uh, opinion of it, so it's and does it matter? You're by yourself and you're just doing this. Why are you doing it? 
Now, if you're doing it because you want to impress people, because that'd be really cool breaking rules, well, now it's your ego. And if you have a big ego like that, I doubt that you'd be able to do things because people with big egos don't have that much focus and don't aren't able to do that. So here you are, uh, you know, an embodiment of love and caring. Why would you want to do that? How does that help other people? Well, there's nobody else in the room, so why why is that? So the whole thing kind of comes, you know, apart as far as a practical problem, but now let's just say it's a theoretical problem. Could this be possible? Even though it doesn't seem to really make any sense as a regular as a real problem, and I say yes, it could be possible, but it doesn't sound very practical. The only reason for people doing that would just be to do it. It'd be an ego issue, and people with ego issues generally can't do things like that. So, okay, uh, the next question comes from an MBT forum user. I heard a question asked to Tom on a fireside chat about what the guide saw when Tom was stopped from exploring NPMR as a child. That's non-physical matter reality. Tom's answer was along the lines of different factions in NPMR, kind of like politics, and uh, Tom was part of one of these political factions. Tom never really went into depth about it, I guess, as it would maybe be too much info for the average person and would maybe give them fears or beliefs. But my question to Tom is this, when you referred to politics in MPMR, is that like politics here? For example, one party's ideas against another as to how they want things run? And if so, who decides which party's in charge? And as we are all one, all part of the LCS, the larger consciousness, larger consciousness system, is it not like being in conflict with oneself? Well, yes. Uh, yes, yes, and yes to those last questions. Uh, politics there is like politics here in that you have, you have people, you have entities with free will, just as all of us have free will. You know, all I, individuated units of consciousness, IUOCs, all have free will. So when you have people with free will who all have their own unique experience, because none of us travel exactly in the other person's shoes, so we all have our own unique experience. You have people who come to different opinions of what should be done and how it should be done and what the rules should be, just differences of opinion, everyone interpreting it based on their own experience and, and uh, depending on their level of quality. If they have a lower quality, they're interpreting it more in what, how's it good for me? A higher quality, they're interpreting more on how's it good for the system? So you have all these differences of opinion and Differences of opinion, that's what I'm calling politics. When, you know, some groups feel it goes this way. Opinions often kind of uh, group up with those who have similar, kind of all get together to make sure it goes the way they think it has to go, and the other group groups up to, to uh, represent their side of the, of the opinion. And that's politics. And that happens in places like... Uh, PMR and it happens in NPMR. It happens everywhere. Every, anytime you have a, a social unit or a, a, uh, a group, you have that going on inside the group. It's just the way we are. And it's not just here in PMR, but in the non-physical and in in what I called end division in the book, we have the same kind of thing going on. So, yeah, politics is politics. People are people. And it's because everybody has free will 
and everybody interprets data according to the, where they are in quality and, and, uh, and what their experience is, you get everyone has their own way of looking at things. And that, those opinions tend to group up and form political um, forces, if you will. And that was just the, that's just the nature of being conscious. It's a social system. Consciousness is a social system, and social systems are like that. Now, if everybody were grown, if everybody was, was love, and we were all beings of love, and uh, that would be a little different, but it doesn't work that way. We're an amalgam of all sorts of levels of quality, and thus we have all kinds of different issues. Um, next question from Dave in the MBT forum. Rather sweet. Um, for low-level individuated units of consciousness, like myself, for example, who want to receive information from the very, very best available sources, like you, for example, what are we to do when you are not around or we have third parties to deal with? You have very big shoes to fill, and I don't currently see anyone close to being able to fill them. Okay, well, the answer to that is very similar to the one I gave to Polly uh, a little earlier, and that is your way forward isn't by getting good instructions from the master or from the guru or from who it is you trust. That's really not your way forward. Your way forward is by being authentic, being yourself, making choices that you think are the right for your reasons, and then seeing what happens. How does it affect people? How does it affect yourself? Are you contributing to the problem or are you contributing to the solution? That kind of thing. So getting your questions answered is more satisfying to your intellect and you have an intellectual need to get the answers because you don't want to do it wrong. It's like, well, I need to know first before I act because otherwise I might act wrong. Again, we're talking about a fear of not doing it right, not understanding it right, not being right, and that fear can paralyze you from doing anything because if you can't move without knowing that you're moving right, then you don't move at all because you'll never know all the answers that you need to know to make that decision deductively. So the best thing to do there is not worry too much. Get the general idea. Talk to people. And sure, some people know more than others about subjects. And sometimes you feel that, uh, that uh, some people have more credibility and more believability because of the backgrounds and what they understand and so on. Well, all of that's good. And you can gather as much of that information as you can. But enough's enough. You don't have to keep gathering it to the end point. Just go do. Be. Interact. Meet people. Make decisions. And then think about the results of that. That will take you a lot further than it will making sure that the information you get is right. In the end, you have to come to your own sense of what's true and what's not true. You can't get it from me or anybody else. You know, it's not that if I tell you this, then it's higher. It's more likely to be true than if somebody else tells you this. It doesn't matter. If it's not your experience, it's not your truth. So go out and get your experience. Make it your own truth through your own experience. And it doesn't matter that much that, you, that your intellect uh, has a lot of uncertainty in it. Learn to live with that uncertainty. Yeah, I don't know all the answers, and yeah, I don't know what the best thing is to do, and I'm not sure how I ought to act or whether I should go home and stay and talk to these people, but my intent says that I'd probably be better off if I stay and talk, so I'll just go through that and see what happens. 
see where that takes me. And eventually, when all these things happen many, many times over and over, you'll get a sense of what's working, what's not. Do you feel better? Do you feel happier? Do you feel more fulfilled? Do you feel more like a part of life and, and that you're part of, the, you know, part of the solution? If you do, then go with it. But keep looking at it. Keep being skeptical. Keep uh, making sure you're not just convincing yourself that whatever it is you do is wonderful. No matter what it is, uh, you always got to be skeptical about it. But just go on and do it. It doesn't matter that you don't have all the answers. Matter of fact, having needing to have all the answers is a fear, and you need to let it go.